Hello and welcome to a new episode of eWorklife, a podcast where we talk about productivity, well-being and work-life balance. We talk to scientists and others who can help us make the most of our technology to get our work done, to keep connected to others and to support our health and well-being. I'm Anna Cox, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at UCL in London and your host for this episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Paulina Bondaronic, an expert in behaviour change technology, about how her father's disability sparked her interest in health psychology, how she dealt with her own mental health struggles during her PhD, and why, when there are over 300,000 health apps available, we aren't all much fitter. But before that, Let's listen to some top tips for surviving life in the digital age from some of our other guests. I'm Joe Newbold, a lecturer at Northumbria University, and my top tip for surviving life in the digital age is to create different playlists for different parts of your life. So perhaps you have one for getting up in the morning, one for exercising, one for relaxing, one for cooking dinner, and one for working. I'm Connor Linehan, a senior lecturer in applied psychology at University College Cork. My top tip for using technology to get the best out of life is to be very careful when using apps to set new rules for our behavior. Research tells us that following rules is very satisfying and rewarding and can stop us thinking about whether the rule really works for us. Moreover, breaking the rule can be very stressful. Now to today's guest. Dr. Paulina Bondaronic is an expert in behaviour change technology and is currently a behavioural insights advisor at Public Health England. Her PhD was on the public health potential of mobile applications to increase physical activity and she's published on the relationship between popularity and the likely efficacy of physical activity apps. In today's episode... We talk about her journey to studying psychology at university and how her father's illness and disability sparked her interest in health psychology. We also talk about how she dealt with her own mental health struggles during her PhD and how her research on behaviour change technology has shed light on how apps are supposed to help us stay physically active often fail. And in the words of one of her participants, they often end up making us feel like physical activity is a bit like masturbation. So let's get straight into it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Paulina Bondaronic. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me, Paulina. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start our conversation um, by kind of talking to you about how you uh, created this um, interesting career that you have. So you I know you started your university education by studying psychology. So what was it that got you interested in that in the first place? I think, uh, first of all, I studied three times with only the third undergraduate I finished. And the learning from me is, yes, I studied in Poland to become an an, an English teacher. And then I studied in Warsaw to to become, well, that was social, social psychology in English. It was the first course in Poland. And that I haven't finished either, just because I loved London so much and wanted to be here. And the third course was psychology. 
And I think it took me a while because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I still say I'm 37 now. I'm not quite sure what I want to do when I grow up. But so for those people who are still not sure, I think this is such a it's such a nice thing to comforting thing to 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 know. But um, so psychology. Well, um, I think I was always interested. Uh, how the mind works, but also I grew up with a father who was on a wheelchair. He stopped walking from one day to another. I was at the age of 14 now, and I was looking how he would adjust to a long-term condition like this, not being able to walk for seven years before he passed. And I saw how little support there were for the psychology of adjusting to long-term condition to make it easy for the person. So I think this was just helped me to ingrain this kind of psychology bit in me to, to be motivated, to be more interested in these issues. Okay, so but it must have been really hard for, I guess, not just for your father, but also for other members of your family watching him have to deal with this. It was incredibly hard, but I think... Uh, well, we know that's the other thing. I think the second motivator was just to get to know myself a little bit because it was kind of silent. We didn't speak about that, you know. In, in certain families, you, you speak a bit more about the emotions. We just get on with things. And maybe that's something to do with growing up in communism. We just, you know, there was so much despair and, you know, and the practicality was the most important thing in your life, you know. Um, money had no value. You know, I give you chicken, you give me, you know, a sweater that you just did, your, knitted yourself, this kind of... So it was all about practicalities, but not so much about emotions, I think. And and I, I wanted to learn a bit more about that uh, and to get to know myself. It was incredibly difficult, it's true, for the whole family. And And so... Was it an interest in clinical psychology that originally took you in that direction? Yes, exactly. Because I think at that stage, everyone wanted to be a clinical psychologist. This was what psychology was about, or, or a psychotherapist. You, you wanted to work one-on-one, and this was the exciting bit that you see in the films. And then it turned out that it wasn't so maybe so interesting uh, altogether. When I did a module in health psychology, I realized, okay, this is it. I love this. This is about uh, healthy behaviors. This is about um, long-term management of, of well, long-term conditions. And that was the exciting bit for me that I associated myself with and with growing up with my father being um, well disabled. And so you then went on to do a master's in health psychology. And uh, and after that, you you worked at the UCL School of Pharmacy um, on a couple of projects looking at adherence to medication before starting a PhD and perhaps, you know, what led you ultimately to your PhD topic? Mm -hmm. I think during my undergrad, when I did my health psychology module, I realized I just want to do research. I just, this is, this gives you such freedom. I just love this and just having just one topic and, and, and ex- expanding it and expanding yourself. It was amazing. So this, this was a good thing that I realized I want to do something. I got first class honors and then I got distinction from my health psychology. I thought the world is open. 
uh, you know, I'm just going to get any job I want. And obviously that wasn't the case at all. So actually before I got the research assistant post, I was working in a lot of uh, sort of uh, social um, support worker with people with mental health disabilities. And then I managed to get a job in charity mind, just like a temporary job. And I mean, I, I always wanted to be a research assistant because that was the, the next stage to get to university to do PhD. I knew I needed more experience. So this was actually any sort of health psychology work. I was so open to it and it didn't matter what kind of topic it was. So it wasn't like I really wanted to do this and that. I just wanted to be at university and just throw stuff at me so I can do some research, gather data, write papers. I just needed more experience. So that was it. And then, yeah, I think I think that was that, if that answers the question. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so um, alongside uh, doing your PhD research, you also started working at Public Health England. So how did that opportunity come about? Mm -hmm. So this is through uh, the, uh, the research councils give this kind of opportunity that you could choose a place. Uh, there's so many different places. I mean, it's, it, these are governmental institutions and you can apply your skills to actually do some stuff to um, to use your skills in a governmental institution or in public health institution and I always wanted to do something in behavioral insights because I, I heard about behavior science what it about behavior insights more sort of applying what we know about behavior science to public health issues so this was this opportunity where you could take three months off from your PhD officially if you are funded by a research council uh, to do this internship. Uh, so I took an opportunity. Um, I had an interview. They liked me. They took me on. And then after three months, they asked me to extend, which actually was possible. And so I did it part time and then they I got employed and I'm still there. Okay. And uh, I guess, you know, that kind of like public health message and the importance of understanding behavioral science seems super topical right now. So there's been, you know, lots of talk in the media over the last few months about um, whether the government is following the science and uh, in coming up with its COVID measures. And also, I think we've had um, a number of scientists talking about how we can use behavioral science to help us, um, I guess, help people to keep themselves safe. So um, are those the sorts of things that you've been looking at whilst working there? Um, recently, yes, there, there's more of things that put on hold because of COVID and we just, as a priority. So the recent work I've been doing is looking at the contact um, tracing system at Public Health England uh, to analyze the feedback, the customer feedback data. So the qualitative stuff that's there following the, the service uh, completion and looking into sort of what, what are the themes, what people have problems with to try to uh, make the, the service better. 
Um, so use some, you know, just use thematic analysis, see what are the issues. So this is more, I mean, this doesn't, it, it, it's not strictly behavior science, this is sort of feedback data, how can we improve the service? But this is still extremely interesting in terms of what kind of issues people have with the, with the system. Uh, but so what I was working on, let me, so for example, so a good example would be, um, would be a strategic behavior analysis. So this is something we use to improve uh, interventions that are nationally available. So for for example, the one I've done is is uh, antimicrobial resistance. So I was involved in the project. So the target behavior is to decrease antibi uh, antibiotic prescribing in primary care. So what we would do in the first stage is we would um, well identify the behavior and then look at the influences of on that behavior. So the barriers facilitators to decreasing uh, antibio antibiotic prescribing in primary care. And then we would look at the interventions that are already there implemented to see if they target those influences on the behavior. And then to see what are the gaps there that we can potentially uh, target. So, for example, if we see that all the interventions that are nationally available target uh, knowledge of the GPs, we can say, okay, but that might not be the best way if it shows that the influences are more environmental um, rather than knowledge-based. So, uh, an example of environmental would be the lack of time. That's 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 a big one, right? Especially for general practitioner. But if we target their knowledge, how likely it is to change their behavior? Well, quite unlikely. If the reason that they're prescribing is because they've got a lack of time and that's the thing that's driving them to make that decision. Yeah, okay. So it sounds as though working there, you've had the opportunity to think about how to design behavior interventions, behavior change interventions. And now you're looking... Uh, very much at, at designing digital service. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Or improve digital service. Yes. This is all sorts of work that we wouldn't. That's the thing I like about working in such an organization. You, you work with so many different projects. So the AMR stuff is, is, is not designing anything new, but providing some recommendations. So looking at the landscape and making it, trying to make it better. Um, but yes, I, I've been involved in work where uh, we try to design interventions from scratch um, as well. Um, or actually, yes, so there's less of that actually. We do it more in academia. It's more looking at the interventions that are already there and trying to improve them, I guess, and see where should we focus now. Okay, yeah. It sounds really interesting and that... Um... You've had uh, the opportunity to successfully combine so working in the academic world and, and doing academic research with also this opportunity to work in uh, public health England and like apply what you know to real problems that influence everyone in their everyday life. And one of the things this makes me think about is that for most people when they're doing their PhD, just doing that on its own is hard enough. So I wondered, like, how ha how did you manage to do both, to fit both alongside each other? 
So technically, the nice thing about this internship is that you get those three months off your PhD and you still get paid your studentship. Um, but what I've done <laughs> was that I timed it well, so I was recruiting for my trial. So I've done a trial for my PhD um, assessing two physical activity apps. So I would be in the office in the morning until 5 p.m. and then I would run around and recruit people. And that was perfect for me because actually it gave me a little bit of anxiety relieving thing because it took me seven months to work out what I'm doing for my PhD. And that was extremely stressful for me. And that was just not good enough for my uh, expectations. So actually this bought me some time so I could run around London and recruit people and run a trial during that. So to answer your question, actually, you're supposed to take those three months off and refresh yourself, leave your PhD. But I don't know how many people do that. Is it even possible to leave your PhD for three months? I doubt that. Uh, but I, I think I managed it very well. I was absolutely exhausted at the end of three months because I was running a trial and doing a full-time job. But I'm sort of used to it. I used to, you know, I had to support myself in London and I was a waitress for eight years whilst I was studying. And sometimes I was full-time studying and full-time being a waitress. So I'm, I'm kind of used to that. It's a so you've, you've built up lots of uh, kind of skills in being super organised and ensuring that you know exactly what you have to do across all of these different areas of your life and uh, and making sure that you deliver on all of them. Like, do you think of yourself as being a really well-organised person? Mm, no, no, I, I don't. When you say it's it's funny because when you describe me, even nice positive things like like you managed to do your PhD and then not many people have this experience. I'm listening to this and think I really like what you're saying, but I I don't associate that. It's the critical mind, and I always say this is why I meditate because I I don't perceive any of the positives. I just get on with it. Uh, but I think it must be in in me because. Um, you know, you, you learn a lot about those self-regulation techniques um, during, uh, you know, in behavior science. This is sort of, it feels like this is the bread and butter of designing interventions, which we can talk about. I mean, it, it's not great, but, you know, this self-monitoring, goal setting, action planning, feedback on behavior, how to improve, reevaluate, do it again. And I quite love that because in the... Well, I never, I was never familiar with agile working, but I think that's the part of it, like sprint planning and doing a sprint review. And I actually love that. I need to do it for myself. So this is kind of work I work um, for for, for the Public Health England digital team. Uh, I do some work there, and we do every two weeks. We we do the sprint review, sprint planning. I just love this kind of stuff. I think I need a little bit more of that because the PhD is finished. Uh, and rather than writing on my fellowship, you can get very, very uh, used to doing other stuff. And I think you've done this and you've, you've been really good at, at that. I've been really impressed when I saw you doing your, do you have like six months? In terms of planning? Yes. Um, yeah, well, I try and um, I, I go through a process every quarter um, with my PhD students and my postdocs and we all sit down and we plan the next three months and I 
and and so we think about what do we want to achieve in that time and how are we going to fit that into the time that is available Mm -hmm. i think i need this now i have it because it's a tangible you need to finish your phd and i have a strict uh you know goal but now it's a little bit i think i need a little bit of that because you can't see it's just there's some stuff on the horizon that's output and the output makes you actually scared of it because you need to achieve something but how are you going to do it it's just not there at the moment yes but in terms i've done this before in my life like i was dealing with mental health issues and what i did was create um every day i had a diary writing about what the issues are and then every week i would reevaluate how am i how am i going towards recovery of course when i was able to do so because at the beginning if you completely lost in your sort of mental health issues you don't have time to do goal setting or that's not your motivator isn't it uh so that helped me a lot in the past so i might need to do it again a bit more okay so i wanted to talk to you a bit about um your phd research as well in like in a bit of detail because um just recently i saw uh, a preprint paper that's become available um that uh, showed that when the UK went into lockdown, that people's physical activity dropped quite dramatically, like as you would expect, right? People weren't able to go out of the house. They weren't commuting to work. They weren't doing the school run. So all of that kind of incidental walking around disappeared. They're also not able to go out and run or whatever they normally did. They couldn't go to the gym or the gyms were closed. So it's perhaps not surprising to see that um, that this that these indicators of physical activity ha- had dropped dramatically over that period. But what I found really interesting was that um, even by mid-June, which was a month after lockdown had kind of been relaxed and people were now allowed to go out multiple times a day, this um, the physical activity data um, hadn't recovered back to its original levels. So it seems this paper seems to suggest that people lost the opportunity to be physically active. And then when those opportunities came back, they weren't able to to reinstate all their old practices and, and so on. And I know that in your research, you've been looking at physical activity apps and and so I wanted to talk to you about whether you think physical activity apps kind of hold the key to helping us get back to where we were before lockdown with our um, levels of physical activity and perhaps even surpass that. Because I guess one of the things we know is that people aren't as active as might we might want them to be for like optimal health. So it seems particularly worrying, I guess, now if if our levels are much lower than they were before. So um, I thought maybe we could start by talking about um, what it is in behaviour change theory that would suggest are the important parts of an intervention if it's going to help us uh, change our behaviour. So what do we need to know from the theory and put into our interventions? So there's... There's no such thing as, as one theory that we could put um, put into it. But I think there's two things 
there's one thing let's look at an example of of the apps that i've been looking at and i spent far too much time in the app store uh, i spent about two years looking at google play and itunes and i knew what's what's high ranked and what's popular so i looked i focused on the most popular apps and this is i think was saying what they what they miss and whether they hold the key i think we will answer the, the question that you asked um so most of the apps on the market and these are downloaded in millions um they focus on what i mentioned so these are the, the things that we call self-regulation technique and if you think about self-regulation as a word, it has to do with something that you do to yourself. You regulate yourself in one way or another. So you kind of take control of your own behavior. Yeah. And so these are stuff like monitoring your, your running, uh, pace, elevation, time, um, doing your seven-minute workout challenge, uh, you know, again, you're monitoring, tick the box, I've done it. And then it shows you uh, feedback, how many times a week you've done it, how many times you ran for how long, and how many calories you've burned. Uh, and then sometimes it helps you to set some goals. Not always uh, helps you to, to action plan towards these goals. Um, so even if we look at this, simple uh these features which are prevalent in most apps there's a bit of social support bits but it's mainly mainly um the social support i find a little bit primitive because it's sort of yes i've done my run uh, give me a little thumbs up uh, i think we could do much better um there's a little digital rewards as well uh, things like that and little prompts and that's pretty much it um, now, if you think about behavior science, if we know that uh, people like Daniel Kahneman, uh, who popularized the dual process theory, so the system one and system two, which is a simplification, but still it's really helpful. The, 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 one of the, the system one is the one uh, that uh, is more emotional, impulsive, relies on habits. Um, it's a very automatic process. It's a cue dependent. I see a chocolate, I grab the chocolate, I eat the chocolate because I'm stressed. And then the other one is the self-regulation one, the decision-making process, the deliberate decision-making process, the effortful um, system. Now, if you think about that, I would argue that the apps target the second one, which is the effortful decision-making. I make a goal. I stick to the goal. I reevaluate re my goal. And I think that this is a huge problem because we are not those robots, rational human being that we think that we are ourselves. Because my motivation, I don't know about you, but bitter experience from uh, my life shows me that I will decide something and I will decide for sure in the morning. In the afternoon goes away and in the evening, forget about it, I'll start tomorrow. And I'll convince myself that I'll start tomorrow again. And I'll be so sure about that. And then again, I mean, I had it with, with trying to quit smoking. I smoked for six years, you know. How many times do you promise yourself that this will be for sure your last cigarette, you know? And this is because the, the system one is the emotional one, the cue-dependent one. Again, I see a cigarette, I sm smell a cigarette, and I, I really need one. 
you're saying that that system one drives a lot of our behavior but we kind of when we're thinking about trying to to change our behavior we tend to focus on system two and the and the technology is all around system two yes that's thank you you summarize it very well i just talk uh, talk too much about that but uh, yes exactly because i think also it's much difficult well i don't know if it's much difficult but it's it's easier to you know set a goal in apps i'm not a designer and i don't know in terms of technology what's available there but i'm sure we can do better than that in terms of helping people to um you know to help them in terms of sticking to behavior even if if this is not something that you feel at the moment or fighting their their habits that they would like to uh, get rid of so do you think that um it sounds like you've identified a real gap there that that we need to be thinking about system one and its influence on behavior, but the technology isn't really helping us there. So do you think that's something that technology can help us with? Mm. This is what I love multidisciplinary work because I think it can, and I think we need to work. So behavior scientists, practitioners of physical activity, let's say, uh, designers, uh, people from, you know, um, human-computer interaction like yourself and work together and, and, and answer this question. Because actually, I don't know what technology, what, how technology can help us, but I know it can if we only get away from this self-regulation stuff that's already there. Because if you think about it, in behavior science, if we look at what works now for physical activity, we'd say that those feedback monitoring goal setting works and of course it does work but the problem is that we don't have evidence for any other stuff that's not there at all or is so scarce that we cannot conduct systematic reviews on those to say that the the self-regulation to say that those things work because they're a bit more obscure and they might have been tested but um but not tested enough to be certain as we need to be, well, certain to certain degree in science, that this works. So if I was to design tomorrow a, a behavior change intervention for physical activity, I would have to put self-monitoring goal setting in there because that's what everyone does. And of course it does work to a certain degree, but it's not sustainable, probably. Also, I think I've seen review recently that for older people, actually the self-regulation techniques do not work really. Um, so we, we need to work together to do that. And I think this things like when I look at the behavior science, so first of all, if you look at, at a goal setting uh, theory, because you've asked about theory, even that is not done very well. Because yes, we have this feedback, we have goal setting, we have self-monitoring. But what's very important in, in, in this kind of, um, in the, this theory is that you need to reevaluate re your goals often and apps don't even do that so it's not only that this is okay this is tick box we've done that bit the decision maker we apps hardly ever ask you to reevaluate re your goal and maybe readjust it no it only goes as far as tells you that you've done it or you haven't done it so if you see for me this is quite primitive what about changing identity what about talking about the emotional bits, for example, um, could we do something about um, identifying yourself as a role model 
in certain way and think you know this kind of stuff which is a bit more fuzzy how do you design for that well that's why we need this multidisciplinary work how do you design for to create to 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 develop a identity as a healthy person and work with that and not necessary physical activity how does that spill over to other behaviors so we need to go bigger i believe in order to have the kind of impact that we really need to have exactly and I think that's why possibly people stopped doing physical activity during COVID. Maybe it didn't um, didn't get back to it. That's just a, a, a that's just my thinking. That because it was extrinsically motivated, often possibly that it's just faded away because it wasn't so much ingrained in intrinsic motivation. I love this stuff, and I, I'm a healthy person. And I love, I know that this run, oh my God, it's raining and I don't want to do it, but I know how it's going to make me feel later on. And also focusing on the pleasure as well. That's another thing. Recently, I was I looked at um, uh, um, American Psychological Association. They have a book on sports psychology and exercise that came out recently. And one of the academics in the first chapter said, we haven't come up with anything new for years. I mean, we've been cycling the same stuff. We're not doing very well. Like, what about the pleasure in physical activity? What about the hedonic motivation? Why do we do, you know, this kind of, and it's true, it's, it's all about goal setting and action planning. And that makes, this kind of stuff makes me really excited. So how can we come together and design something, you know, something better that focuses maybe on the fun of physical activity, for God's sake. There's no fun, is it? <laughs> one of my last thing I want to say is one of my uh, participants, because I, I assessed the seven minute workout challenge. Um, and he said to me, it's like, a, so you do the, it's the heat based seven minute. You know, if I start at 10, seven past 10, I'm done. There's no excuse not to do it. And he said, he said, Paulina, this is something dirty. I've done some qualitative interviews after the trial was finished. This is like, this is like masturbating. I'm closing my door. I'm doing it for seven minutes. I'm done. Thank God I can get on with my life. Is this what physical activity is about? Like, is, is this, I mean, it just doesn't make sense, does it? If we think, if we actually reflect. So to answer your question, yes, I think those apps are not very effective, especially in the long term. So, so in terms of trying to address this, like, current problem of people not you know people have, have being more sedentary and not being as physically active as they were even you know nine months ago say um it sounds like you're saying that the current apps we have are not the key to solving that do, do you think they have they offer something though so even if they're not going to solve the entire problem are they effective in helping people to change their behavior and to uh, and to be a bit more active than they were before? Well, absolutely. I think I'm just being quite negative because for the sake of it, because I'm, <laughs> I'm a pessimist. Absolutely. And you know what? The, the beautiful thing in my trial is because I had people from 20 year old to, to 60, 70 year olds. And the um, one guy said, uh, you know, I, I got, I took out my shoes and it's like uh, my running shoes. It's like being uh, reconnected with an old friend. And the app for running, that was PHE 1U Couch to 5K, 
help them to start running again. And for certain people, definitely did work. It's sort of that the app has to be introduced at the right time, at the right moment, and those critical moments when you are more likely to change. And I think, yes, of, of course, if you told me in the 80s that there will be a little thing in my pocket that can tell me how much I run, set goals for me, uh, you know, ask my friends to maybe to, to, to give me thumbs up. It's an amazing thing. It's just that it has to be introduced at the right time. So, of course, apps has lots of potential. And it did work. They do work for some people. And even with the trial, some preliminary data show that it worked. It increased physical activity for some people. For some people, there was no change. And actually, there was a decrease for some people. Um, so it definitely works. And I think this is what I'm writing in my fellowship, sort of to, to try to find out who it works for. When is the time to introduce those apps? And if the apps don't work, can we just have something else? And this is where my work at Public Health Indian comes in. Like, we know that this is not the thing that will change the world, right? We need to work on so many different levels. And it's not about physical activity. Like it's not, you know, like this masturbation thing for seven minutes and it's done. It's about healthy living, right? And and work-life balance and healthy eating and spending time with family. And in the current climate, it's very hard to do because we are workaholics, or many of us are. <laughs> okay, so, so thinking about, um, I'm curious to know how your your research and your knowledge on this area how do you bring that into your own life um we've talked a little bit already about how you organize yourself and make sure that you know you you balance multiple different jobs or things that you focus on but how do you keep yourself physically and mentally well mm-hmm. <laughs> but do you use physical activity for that I do, but that's quite recent. I think in Poland we have a very good saying, and we say a shoemaker walks without shoes, meaning if you're drawn into certain field like psychology or behavior change, it's because you see it as lacking in in you. And I've seen that before, so I've seen that a lot. So, but yes, physical activity definitely. So. Actually, but the reason was because of my mental health. So my mental health went down during PhD because I have innate um, tendency to criticize myself immensely and have higher expectations. I thought I'm going to finish my PhD in a year, like for sure. Um, and I just, it's, it's, and often I just have to ignore that voice. And so mindfulness is a, is a huge thing. Um, but actually regular mindfulness. So mindfulness is something that's more cognitive change techniques, I call them. However, the sticking to the behavior is definitely behavioral. So uh, then, so how I started, so the implementation intentions here really helped me, which is, you know, I do this at this time. It's very specific setting, um, setting of a goal. So that helped me with meditation. You know, I've got my meditation couch. That's where I sit down. After I brush my teeth, I sit down and I meditate for 15 minutes. And the more I can stick to it, the more habitual it becomes. So this this is a really, really nice technique. Um, 
physical activity. So because of my mental health issues, I was doing my um, PhD in, in uh, Hampstead in Royal Free Hospital. This is a wealthy area that you could never live in. But what they have is the ponds and the parliamentary Lido. And there are only three Lidos in London that are unheated. So I started swimming in them. And in cold water. Yes, yes. And that's my fourth year this year. And it's just so amazing for mental health. I mean, I go in, I lose all my, I, I leave all my troubles there. And I come out as a fresh, amazing human being. <laughs> and uh, everything is dropped there. Everything. Uh, it's, it's an amazing feeling. And there, I think there's more research coming uh, out about that. Uh, the benefits, benefits of, of uh... cold water immersion for sort of mental health. So this is what I do, but I also run, well, now I, I actually moved to my partner in East London, so I cannot swim so much. So I run, I've got my running routine, but there's something interesting that I've done since, since I started running because I would find it quite boring and I, I can imagine why people don't stick to it. And this is another technique. So add something nice whilst you're doing something that you might not enjoy, especially at the moment. So I listen to my favorite podcast and this is the only time I listen to it. And this is Eckhart Tolle, uh, he wrote The Power of Now. And it's, it's not a podcast, it's a book, but there's, there's also his teaching. And that's the only time I allow myself to listen to it for those 40 minutes I run. So I'm looking forward to two things, how I will feel after physical activity, to running around in the park, but most importantly, to my fix to my, of Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Power of Now. So so rather than using a physical activity app as your as a way to motivate you for your running, you're using digital technology in a different way as a way to deliver a, a reward, right? A, a positive reward to go with the running because you're going to get to listen to the thing that you really enjoy listening to. Exactly. And that's more of tapping into the system one, the emotions, you know? Yes, yes. Okay, that, that's been so interesting. I've really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, what's going to happen? But I could talk to you forever. Thanks so much to Dr. Paulina Bondaronic. You can find her at Paulina Bond One on Twitter. That's Paulina Bond and the Digit One. You can find a link to her website and access the show notes for this episode on our website, eworklife.co.uk where you can also find more evidence-based tips on using technology to support work and well-being. If you enjoyed this, you might also be interested in episode 46 of UCL's Coronavirus, The Whole Story podcast, where I'm talking to Vivian Parry about my research on what it's been like for people adjusting to working from home during the pandemic and what the new future of work might look like. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at AnnaCox underscore. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And you can also leave us a star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Claire Casson. This episode was sponsored by the EPSRC Get A Move On Network Plus. Music by scotthomesmusic.com.